Well, I hope you had a good afternoon. We certainly did. Uh, the daughter's family uh, had a reunion this afternoon, and we saw uh, daughter's family relatives we've not seen since I was 16 years of age, so it was a lot of fun, including uh, additional uh, children and grandchildren that uh, are uh, completely new to us, but uh, have our name as well, relatives uh, from Ohio out visiting. So a great time, uh, fun afternoon. This morning we were looking at Revelation uh, chapter 3, and I'd like to back up a chapter and look at Revelation chapter 2 uh, this evening. Uh, these include letters from Jesus Christ uh, to specific, actual, historic churches. Uh, these churches uh, have both successes and problems that are representative of the kinds of successes and problems that uh, churches even today experience. And so to have Jesus uh, critique these churches in his letters are actually very helpful for us as we critique our own churches and uh, the success uh, or uh, the missteps that we would make. In the church at Ephesus, here in uh, chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, uh, is a very famous church uh, that we know very well. Uh, we know, for example, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. For many of us, it's... Uh, one of our favorite uh, letters uh, in the entire New Testament, probably uh, because the theology is uh, so deep. Uh, Ephesus is a very important uh, city in the Roman Empire. Out of all the empire, it was in the top four of importance, and consequently, to plant a church in that city uh, would make that uh, church a very important one. You remember Paul, as he was moving around planting churches, as he would often uh, stay just a few weeks, like at the church at uh, Thessalonica. He moved on very quickly to the church at Corinth, spent a lot more time at Corinth because of uh, its importance, and spent three whole years in Ephesus. In fact, he even set up a Bible school there, uh, the school of Tyrannus, in Ephesus, uh, because he really wanted to get them grounded in the Word of God. Uh, consequently, when we read the letter that he wrote back to the church at Ephesus, uh, it has advanced ecclesiology, advanced uh, doctrine in uh, the church that helps us understand uh, some things that are uh, not talked about a lot, such as God having a plan for us uh, even before he created uh, the world. Now, the church at Ephesus uh, is placed into a setting of Ephesian uh, new converts uh, who are influenced by the culture around them in that city. And if you look at any of these seven letters to these seven churches in Asia, that is true. And though we would like to say it's not true of us uh, here in Southern California, it's way more true uh, than we realize. And it should actually teach us to examine in some ways, uh, what our culture teaches, what our worldview is, both in America generally and in Southern California particularly, and ask ourselves, to what extent is that culture or that worldview reflected in our church? Uh, is our church uh, taking on some of the characteristics uh, of our city or of our region? Uh, Ephesus, is, as we know, is an important city. Uh, it was uh, quite close uh, to the ocean, to the uh, Sea of the Mediterranean. Uh, it was on a river, the Caister River, but not right on the seashore. It was three miles inland. It was considered the metropolis of what 
was Asia, but it was still Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, that eventually opened up to uh, the rest of Asia. It obviously had uh, highways uh, traveling east to go across the entire continent, and it made it a tremendous commercial center. If we were to describe uh, to people in other parts of the, uh, the states uh, what is Los Angeles uh, known for, uh, we might uh, describe uh, the beautiful weather and the sunshine, we might describe uh, citrus crops, we might describe Hollywood and the movie industry, the entertainment industry, we might describe Disneyland or uh, the beaches, the mountains, the desert. We might describe various aspects about it, but if you were to ask an Ephesian what they were proud of, and I don't mean a believing Ephesian, I just mean an Ephesian generally, it was that they had the temple of Artemis uh, in the Greek or Diana in, uh, in Latin or the, in the Roman Empire. She was one of the most important goddesses in the pantheon of the Greek or the Roman gods. Consequently, uh, her temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. She was the goddess, among various other uh, reasons, of fertility. And rather than getting into a, a detailed description of what she looked like, I'd encourage you just to Google her sometime, the goddess Artemis or the goddess Diana, and look for pictures of her. And you'll see why she was portrayed the way she was uh, regarding uh, the sense of fertility and the ability to give life. Uh, you may recall that there was surrounding uh, the temple there in Ephesus uh, quite a, a trade built on that religion. A lot of shrine making, a lot of uh, uh, making of uh, little statues to imitate her. Uh, you may recall when Paul was there preaching that he disrupted uh, the silversmith's trade in making these little shrines. Uh, to the point uh, where they rioted and tried to throw the whole city into uh, a riot to destroy Paul and his friends. Uh, they were also deep into uh, black magic. Uh, in the conversion of the new members of the church at Ephesus, uh, they had been saved out of the occult and had a tremendous library of occult literature. Uh, when they burned uh, their magic books, uh, we read in Acts 19 that they burned 50,000 pieces of silver worth of books. Uh, so you can imagine uh, the hideous nature of the kinds of uh, background they had in the occult and in magic. Uh, that temple uh, was a, a beautiful building, uh, 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, 60 feet high, uh, with 120 columns, some of which are still extant today. Uh, the columns were often donated by other kings from other empires, and their plaques would be on each of the columns, you know, giving tribute, in a sense, uh, to the prophetess uh, Diana. And the church was founded in 53 AD uh, by the Apostle Paul, and he stayed there in town three years then pass it on to the young uh, protege that he had, Timothy, and Timothy was there for a number of years. Then he passed it on to the Apostle John, who wrote us the Gospel of John, 
and who at the end of his age uh, was actually sent uh, in exile to the island Patmos out into the Mediterranean Sea, where to encourage him, he gave, uh, God himself gave John this revelation uh, that we read as the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, including uh, this particular letter of Jesus to the church at Ephesus. And it gives us a glimpse of what a church that would be perfect in a sense could look like 43 years after it was founded. I don't know how old Claremont Bible Chapel is. I'm going to just throw out a number. I'm going to guess it's probably 100 years old as far as uh, where it started. Uh, not 100 years old, 75 years old. 1950, oh, just a young church. Did it start off of the Pomona Gospel Hall? This was all original? Okay, all right. So uh, 65 years old, is that about right? 65 years old, okay. Well, the church that we're reading about here is only 43 years old uh, when Jesus writes this letter to them. So he gives both compliments as to what uh, they are doing well and he gives critique about how they could improve. Follow with me as I read uh, Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So he opens uh, by instructing a letter be sent uh, from Jesus himself to the church at Ephesus. Uh, he introduces himself as the one uh, who with a great authority, uh, control, possession, and provision uh, is over these seven churches in Central Asia Minor that he writes to. Uh, he speaks of uh, the seven golden lampstands, which would be the testimony of the light that comes uh, from each of these churches. And part of his warning is, if you want to continue to be a light to those around you, uh, you need uh, to be careful about what I say. It's my testimony that you're maintaining. It's my reputation uh, that you represent. And so listen carefully to how I evaluate you. He opens in verse 2 by telling us that he knows our secrets, that there's nothing that we can hide from him, that if we just say, well, I don't want to take any evaluation because I just don't want to get into that at all, he is already evaluating us, 
And so it would be wise of us, by his criteria, to be able to analyze whether he'd be proud of us or not. And he says, I know your deeds. And verse 2 is all about the things they're doing well. He says, first of all, your toil, your work. They are a very active church uh, that works to the point of exhaustion. Often in churches, uh, there is a, a core group of people who work very hard in the church. Very commonly across America, it would be uh, a smaller percentage of the whole church. Maybe 20% of the church as a whole would do probably 80% of the work of the church. And he says, uh, you all work very hard uh, at uh, the services of the church. I'm proud of you for that. Secondly, you have persevered. You have endured. Uh, you are carrying on even when it's difficult. It's one of the things that we try to teach our own children is don't give up easy. Uh, have steadfastness. Have discipline. Have resolve. Stick to it. Finish what you start. Uh, hang in there. Uh, endure for that which is right. And thirdly, uh, he compliments saying that to them, and I know that you do not tolerate evil men. It's a strange thing to think that uh, many of our problems in the churches are not so much the criticism of outsiders, of unbelievers, but actually people in our churches with actually access to our people to influence what our people believe. In fact, in these cases, these are false apostles, meaning people who purport to be apostles but are imposters and are not from God and are not saved and are teaching false doctrine and leading people astray. And he says, I compliment you that you do not tolerate these men. You put them to the test, meaning that you evaluate them both on their doctrine and on their practice. Uh, you can even see in their lifestyles that they're hypocrites. Uh, you can see by their theology that they're not teaching the truth, and you do not listen to them, and you put them out. That's good. And it should be uh, a warning to us to likewise uh, not uh, let our guard down, but to be Berean-like in the sense that whoever is teaching us, uh, that we search the scriptures to see if it really is true, if what they're teaching is accurate. And that we would even evaluate ourselves as we search the scriptures to make application and make sure that we are living out what the scripture says. One of my profs in school uh, was exhorting me that the way in which I would evaluate myself in my preaching is if a person on Sunday afternoon could go back to the passage that I opened in the morning, read through it, and understand it for himself or herself. So I only succeed in my own sense of evaluation if I have made the passage clear enough that you can understand it and read through it and say, yes, I now understand that passage. And my hope would be from this morning that you could understand the letter to the Laodiceans and now tonight that you'd be able to understand the letter uh, to the Ephesians. You could say, I know what he's teaching in this section. Uh, that would be a goal for quality teaching, something that was not occurring with these false teachers uh, who were leading people astray. And in verse 3, he compliments them again, saying, and you have perseverance. In fact, it's in the present tense, meaning that you are continuously succeeding and keeping the momentum going. You have not 
fallen away. You have endured even difficulty for my name's sake, for my reputation. Uh, it has not been easy. If you are in ministry at all, you realize that ministry takes work. Uh, say a camp counselor, you were talking about camp and needing of, of counselors. There's no one that works harder at camp than the camp counselor. And there's no one who has more stress and more difficulty and loses more sleep and has to have more patience than the camp counselor. Uh, same thing with Sunday school teachers. If I could go back to my grade school Sunday school teachers and apologize for talking in class and distracting people next to me and telling silly jokes that got us uh, off task, I would love to go back to my Sunday school teachers and say, I am so sorry uh, that I was a cut up in class and I wasn't uh, the kind of student I should have been. I, I improved as I got better. In fact, I, I teach Sunday school myself now and I feel your pain. I, I know what it's like. Uh, you, you can sense how it takes endurance to carry on the work of the Lord. Uh, and he says, you've not grown weary. You've maintained purity of doctrine all these years. You've maintained purity of your lifestyle. You have a high level of service. Uh, your theology is good. Well, it was good way back when we were reading uh, the letter so many years ago, back at, at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. They had deep understanding of theology, and he could go very deep with them into explaining uh, what love was and how to love and how to let God empower you to love. They had that good theology, uh, and it was lived out in their lives. They had good practice, good service, and in some ways you could say, well, what could possibly be wrong with this church? How would you possibly critique them in anything? Haven't you covered every base possible with these compliments? In fact, if I were listening to a letter like this being read about myself, I'd say, well, I guess I'm safe. It's perfectly fine. I guess I have no room to improve. Except what he says next must have just knocked them off their feet. You know, in our day and age in which uh, everything happens uh, so quickly, it, it would seem strange to us to have someone stand in front of the church and read a letter addressed to us from someone outside the church. And to you know, have a letter from the apostle who founded your church would be uh, stupendous. In fact, when you get to chapter 6 of Ephesians, you can tell the children are in the meeting because he speaks directly to the children and says, children, obey your parents. So you know, everybody's there listening to the letter being read. But imagine a letter from Jesus, from the apostle John, to us, addressed to us, it's so good so far, because you're hearing it orally, until you hit verse 4. Oh, how this hurts. He says, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. In the Greek, uh, it's a language in which uh, the words are inflected and declined so that you don't have to keep them in a certain order like you do in English uh, to make sense. You can actually mix the words together in a different order. And by placing in that order, you can tell what word is being emphasized in a sense of like underlining it. And the way in which this is worded in its original word order is, your first love you have 
left. What I find most striking about this evaluation, and I had to read it several times before I actually was sure that I was reading it correctly, is we normally speak about losing your first love, as if you accidentally fell out of love, like you, you had feelings before and I just ain't feeling it anymore, you know, where I thought I was attracted to you, I, I thought you were really cool, but I'm not sure that I'm feeling those kinds of feelings any longer. But that's not the term he uses. He uses a term for leaving, as if it's a choice, as if you had gone AWOL, that you had walked away from your first love. And you'd say, that's impossible for a church that's doing so well. How could a church that he could compliment and say, you, you work hard, you persevere, you've got great doctrine, you don't tolerate evil, you test the apostles, you put them out, not grown weary in well-doing, great job. It's just you've lost your first love. Well, what is first love? It's a reference uh, to that fervent, chaste, pure love of a new bride. It's what it's like to fall in love in the beginning. Can you remember that? No, some of you may have not experienced that yet. Maybe young and new and these kinds of things. When it happens to you, you'll say, what hit me? I have no idea what this feels like. I can remember uh, meeting Carol, the woman who's now been my wife for 36 years. Uh, we met in college. And my grades actually went up when I started hanging with her because she studied all the time. I can remember we, we, she'd go, well, let's go to the library and study. And I'm going, the library? Yes, the library. And so she'd be dutifully reading her book, and I'd be sitting across the table, and I'd be staring at her instead of looking at my textbook. And, and she'd look up every once in a while and say, stop staring at me. Study. But I had this, this deep longing uh, to know her and to find out what she was like. She was mysterious in a sense. She, she, there, was, there was so much about her I, I wish I knew more about. And there's just such a feeling. She's saying like, I don't want to have a boyfriend right now. I, I don't need a boyfriend. And I was saying, like, well, I'm not looking for a girlfriend either. I just enjoy being with you. Can't we just like be together? Yes, we can just be together. But remember, I don't need a boyfriend right now. Well, as we spent time with each other, you can imagine what's happening. We're getting to enjoy each other more and more, and, and we're uh, getting to know each other better and better, and we're beginning to sympathize uh, with each other and help each other and do kind things for each other. And it's also new and fresh and exciting that there's a whole new bound in your step. There's a whole reason why you want to get up in the morning. It's, there's a whole reason of why you get dressed. It's not like I'm just throwing something on. It's like, well, what should I wear today? Because she'll see me and, and it, I, want to, I want to look right because, and I'm sure she's doing the same thing. She's, she's probably saying like, well, what would he like to, to see? So I'll, I'll, I'll wear this. Everything is special. Everything is new and fresh. I travel a lot on business and 
going through airports, uh, sometimes I'm away from my family for a while, away from my wife particularly, and I'm, I'm wishing I could be home, and I'm walking through an airport, and I see a husband and wife sitting in a booth, uh, having a meal together, and here's the funny thing, both of them have the newspapers up so high that they can't even see over them. They're reading the newspapers like this. And I'm thinking like, you're sitting two and a half feet apart with newspapers up so high that you can't see each other, you can't talk to each other, don't even seem to be interested in each other. And I, I thought to myself, if I am going to sit in a booth in a restaurant with my wife, I'm not going to read the newspaper. What I'll do is I'll be playing on my phone. <laughs> and sometimes my wife is talking to me, and, and I do both business and uh, pleasurable things on my phone, uh, but I'm looking at it often. And she'll say, are you listening to me? And I'll, I, I, I can repeat back to her what she had just said. You know, I'm like listening out of one ear, and I'm trying to multitask with my phone and all this at the same time. And she's saying, like, pay attention to me. And finally, she'll get my attention, I'll put my phone away, and I'll look her in the eye, and I'll listen more devoutly to what she's about to say, and I will catch myself and say, you know, I was wrong here to give her partial attention when she's actually speaking to me, because this is my bride, this is the love of my life, this is the one I prioritize, this is the one I want to make my wife. You know, when we're newly in, in love, we're so careful uh, not to do anything offensive. Uh, we're not going to burp in front of the other person. Uh, we're, we're, we're not going to say things that, that would be improper. We're going to be on our best behavior. But as time goes on, I started slurping my soup. And she'll say, honey, you're slurping again. I say, oh, was I slurping? I'm sorry. She says, you're slurping again. We, we just let down our guards, and, and we're less polite than we were before. We don't open doors for our wives as much as we used to in the old days. We're not as careful to help her with things like lifting things, carrying things, getting things down from somewhere up high. We think like, she has two arms, she has two legs, can she do this stuff herself? No, it's just not as special when we take each other for granted, is it? Now, why would Jesus say to a church that's so healthy, so right in so many ways, but I have this against you, you have left your first love. Now, to translate that out, we've got to think about this because he says you're doing all the right things, but you've left your first love, which means doing the right things can be done without the right motivation, without the right context. Like, have you ever, with a bad attitude, done what you were supposed to do. I used to do that in my chores that my dad would give me is with a very rotten attitude, I'd mow the lawn and uh, sweep leaves out of the pool and all the time thinking like it's summer vacation, I'm supposed to be on vacation. Like, why am I doing yard work? You know, uh, I know he's at work, but it, you know, we sometimes get so selfish that we, we think 
that the world revolves around us and that we're the most important person and that everyone ought to serve us. You ever notice that your kids can imitate you? Uh, it's fun. I have five kids, uh, ages 18 to 32, and uh, occasionally when they get together and start laughing together, uh, someone starts breaking out on imitations of dad. And one of their favorite quotes about dad was the, the time when Carol had called me as I was coming home from work and she didn't have time to make a meal and she asked if I could pick up pizza and I think I picked up Little Caesars or something and brought it home. And it was a busy night and we were all uh, plopping down at the table to eat the, the pizza and I, I put it in the center of the table and I sat at the end and I wasn't eating. And everybody else has already started eating their pizza. My wife says, why aren't you eating? And in front of my kids and my wife, I said, I'm hungry, I'm tired, and I want to be served. <laughs> uh, I wanted her to get up out of her chair and reach across to the center of the table and pick up a slice of pizza and put it on a plate and present it to me, the same pizza that I had gone to the pizza parlor to get and bring home. The kids were horrified, and they've memorized that statement, and it comes up <clears throat> every once in a while when they want to laugh at dad and the, and the stupid things he said from time to time. But what am I saying when I say that? I'm saying, I want to be served. I want it to be about me. I want it to be about people putting me first. And that gets completely in the way of putting Jesus Christ first. It's saying, I want everyone to love and serve me. It's not necessary for me to love and serve others and to prioritize my love in service for Christ. Because it's so easy to serve out of obligation or serve because it's the right thing to do. We can do the right thing the wrong way and get absolutely no credit for it. Remember when Jesus said, oh, you want to toot your own horn? You want to get glory? You, you... I just remembered another one of my famous sayings, my kid's quote. I actually once said, when I was warned, you're going to lose your reward in heaven. I can't believe I said this. I said, well, I want my reward right now. <laughs> can you imagine <laughs> That anyone could be so foolish as to compromise their reward in heaven by saying, I don't care, I want my reward right now. How, how selfish. You know, somebody's got to mow the lawn at the chapel building, right? But I can remember one chapel I was attending where the person who would mow the lawn would only mow it if someone could see him. So he would never mow when he was the only one there he usually mowed exactly the time that everybody was arriving so that everyone could look and see, oh, look, he's mowing the lawn, so that people would appreciate him for what would have been one of those background, behind-the-scenes uh, service activities that no one would have noticed nor uh, appreciated unless they saw him. But frankly, what he was doing was losing his reward by trying to seek to be noticed then. 
If we are serving so that people will appreciate us, if we are serving so that people will compliment us, if we are serving so that we gain higher stature among our peers, if we're trying to improve the pecking order of how important we are amongst each other, we have missed the entire point. And so he says, yes, you could be going through the motions of doing the right things, but doing them the wrong way. You could be observing my commands, but doing them in some legalistic sort of way. If this church is now 43 years of age, it could have an entire second generation of believers. You remember the second generation of uh, folks that went into uh, the wilderness wanderings in the desert, and you can know uh, a problem there or the second generation uh, once they were in the land. There's a problem of how well we communicate the truth to the next generation and whether they own it for themselves or whether their faith is just, well, that's the faith of my parents and it's not really become mine personally. And consequently, they can go through the actions of church-like things without actually serving out of the love and the deep devotion that we have with Christ. We've said that the church at Ephesus was one of the best taught, deepest theological churches that we know of. And yet knowing a lot about scripture doesn't necessarily mean that it is transferred from your head down to your heart. It can be academic. It can be just interesting intellectually. But unless it grabs a hold of our heart and changes who we are and changes our motivations and causes us to love with fervency and with depth and with meaning, if we don't have joy in our service, if, if there's not a sense of intimacy, of fellowship between Christ and us, if, if we're not abiding in Christ where we enjoy him personally, then we've missed the point. I once was participating in a uh, symposium on the Trinity in which uh, each of us uh, was studying an aspect of the Trinity very deeply and then uh, writing a paper and presenting it. As I was studying the Trinity, uh, I was reading one particular author, Wesley, who was saying, go sit under a tree sometime and spend the afternoon just contemplating the Trinity. And I didn't literally sit under the tree. I went out and stood under a tree. <laughs> and it worked. It was the sense of this deep contemplation without any distractions around and the beauty of nature of trying to understand one God in three persons in the complexity of how he has sought to express himself to us in the love that he has shown us of a father sending his son to die in our place and the, the father being willing to punish his son in our place and the son being willing to go and take this punishment upon himself. The beauties of falling asleep contemplating that every aspect of unity in diversity in our human experience traces back to 
God himself in Trinitarian form, was, was beautiful. Yes, it is possible to think deep theological thoughts and have it move beyond your head into your heart. But it's a willful act to do so. It's a willful act to put in practice what we learn intellectually. And so, yes, it takes effort at first to even understand what is being said. But the absolutely essential next step is through the love that we have uh, in the personal relationship that we have with Christ and the intimacy of the fellowship that we have with him by the leading of the Holy Spirit is to ask him, how do I live this out? How do I apply this to myself? What does this mean to me? And wait and allow the Holy Spirit to prompt in your human spirit what he wants you to think about what's being said. Otherwise, it's as if we have a shell without a pearl. It's as if we have an external wrapper, but we open it up and it has nothing inside. It's lost its contents. We need to go back to where we departed. Verse 5 is the remedy. His counsel is admonition. He says, therefore, remember where you have fallen, which means you have to think back to where you were at first when you were so excited about Christ and it was all new and it was revolutionizing your life and it was changing every aspect of your life. I can remember when I was so excited about the Lord, I would freely of my own will as a teenager read my Bible an hour a night. Sounds crazy for a teenager, but I loved it because I was so excited about what I was reading what I was learning and how much I was enjoying him. Rather than falling asleep to rock and roll, I changed the station and found Haven of Rest, which was for old people. I was a teenager. And they'd play a hymn, and they'd give a devotion that matched the hymn, then they'd play another hymn and give another devotion. Can you imagine a 16, 17-year-old falling asleep to Haven of Rest? But I was enjoying what they were teaching me and how they were applying what was necessary to be learned. Remember where you fall and then repent, meaning that you turn around and go the other direction. And he says, do the deeds you did at first, but do them for the right reason. Do you remember the dinner party at Mary and Martha's place? And do you remember Jesus was there and he was teaching and Martha was busy getting all the meal ready, and uh, Mary wasn't helping in the kitchen. Mary was out sitting at Jesus' feet, and Martha comes out and tells Jesus, tell my sister to come help me. And Jesus says, you know, frankly, she's chosen the better part. Well, my wife, who has the gift of hospitality and, and is uh, entertained many times, sympathizes with Martha and her predicament. I mean, no one's going to eat unless Martha succeeds. And all of us are going to want to eat, and so somebody's got to help Martha. And we, we can feel for her in the pragmatic necessity of getting the meal ready. But Jesus' point should not be lost on us. And that is, we shouldn't be so much about doing things to do things, but the whole 
purpose of it is to sit at Jesus' feet and to learn from him. And if we lose that, we've lost everything. So if we just sit down and have a meal with people and we check that off the list and said, I had a meal with so-and-so, I'm done, we've missed the whole point. The point of having a meal with a person is to fellowship with the person, to get to know the person, to get involved in that person's life, to minister to that person's needs, to ask yourself, Lord, why do you have me here right now, and how can I be of service to this person you have me talking to? So often, without us realizing it, we are in places with people that are divine appointments. We don't even... Think of it this way, that God has places there in a divine way to say, you are my hands, my feet, my voice, serve, minister to these people. He says, do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent, meaning he would take away the testimony of the church at Ephesus. Well, thankfully, they must have responded. The church uh, continued on well. We read in the council of Ephesus, they actually had the major uh, council there in 431 that the church was still alive and functioning well. A little after that, it began to decline, but it was well up into the 400s. We should be asking ourselves, if my affections are drawn away, what is drawing them away? John, the one who received this revelation in his letters, will say such things as money grabs our affections. The things of the world grab our affections. Sometimes people in the world grab our affections. And we've got to be careful not to have the right doctrine without the right life to live it out and to back it up. Now, unless he's come on too strong, he does want to give them one more compliment in verse 6. And he says, yet you do have this, that you hate the deed of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Uh, they were uh, licentious antinomians, people who just said everything goes, you can do anything. And if we had problems in our churches today, it's, it's not so much legalism like it was when I was a kid. It's completely the other direction now where anything goes, and since we are reacting against what they thought was legalism, which is really just more of a strict lifestyle and not genuine uh, biblical legalism, uh, they'll say, to prove I'm not legalistic, then I will show you by all these actions, I can do this and do this and do this, and they become free in their expression of living in a sinful worldly way. He says, I'm glad you hate those kind of people. I hate them as well. And he says, if you have an ear, hear what the Spirit is saying, not just to the church of Ephesus, but to the other churches as well. And if you do well, to him who overcomes, I'll grant to eat of the tree of life, that tree from Genesis 3.22, that tree in the garden, he says, which is now in the new paradise of God, the new Jerusalem in heaven. Revelation 22, verse 2. He asks for an individual response from individual Christians. Will you repent and do the deeds you did at first? Think back as to how you used to feel and what love was like when it was new. And ask yourself, Lord, can I have that love again? Will you help me? 
And it's all about where we place the affections of our heart. Let's pray to that end. Father, we turn to you then and ask, won't you please help us not to go AWOL, not to leave the devotion that we've had with you, not to become selfish and want to be served, not to demand our own way, not to expect people to give us accolades, but instead, may our wholehearted devotion to be to you first and to honor you, to serve you, to love you, and to take the love that you have poured into our hearts and pour that same love into the hearts of others as well. Teach us to serve you, not just because it's right, because this is the love from our hearts that we're giving back to you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior.